Hello everybody and welcome to another one in our increasingly long-running series of Financial Wellbeing Podcast. This one is number 99 in the series, which means, yes, you've guessed correctly, that the next one will be the 100th episode. Now, stand by for that one, be with you in a few weeks' time, and that's going to be full of some great features, and we're really looking forward to recording that one and putting it in front of you in due course. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Let's focus into the now and let's meet the uh, familiar two people who join me every time we do one of these podcasts, Tom Morris and Chris Budd. Tom, I'm going to let you go first today. Tell us all about yourself. Yes, at last. Um, So yeah, Tom Morris, uh, Director and Charter Financial Planner over at Ovation Finance. We're based in Bristol, but serving any anyone in the uk yeah including myself and a very good job you do too that's yeah. very kind of you that's very you yeah. please keep saying this every episode because every now and but again it's true i wouldn't say it if it wasn't true but it yes, is true. Yes, yes you, you would, you would. <laughs> the check the check is literally in the post yeah the check would need to be much bigger than the check that is in the post in order for you for me to say that every week right okay well in that case i will i will take <laughs> it at face value and thank you uh chris who the hell are you my name is Chris Budd, Senior Vice President, um, Marketing Coordinator, uh, Carrier of uh, Head of Operations for Space Cowboy Records. <laughs> oh, yes. Now, I want to hear a little bit more about this. Now, of course, I know about Space Cowboy Records because you bought my entire record collection from me. Yep. And I have to say, for a very good price, a price that I was entirely happy with, didn't feel in any way ripped off or exploited. I hope you've had joy with it, and I hope you've been able to make a little bit of money selling some of them on. I, I've had so much fun with this little... So it's it's not a serious venture. It's a hobby, although it costs quite a lot of money building up the stock, I have to say. But I go along to various markets, and I sell my records, and I just love the chat. The chat with people who tell me about their favourite album or the first one they bought, or as uh, one lady said, oh, oh, I love a bit of 4AD label stuff. I had that Bauhaus on the floor of my flat once, <laughs> stuff like that. And a little old lady, one of my favourite moments, a little old lady with a Zimmer frame who looked at my stock and I'm standing behind her so she can see the front row. And she spots something and her eyes light up. And I think, oh, what, what's she seen? One of her old favourite Beatles albums or something. And she just kind of comes to her and says, I used to have that Yazoo album <laughs> yeah it's so much fun and i've had some great chats and i go around people's house and buy their, get by their collections with they're very happy to get rid of you know um and then i stand all day at markets selling one at a time <laughs> and i love it it's great excellent gets you out of the house i expect mrs bud is delighted <laughs> <laughs> do you know what she made that very comment only yesterday <laughs> right, right. it sounds it sounds like this sounds like my my mother i've got a nickname for for my mum or we do as a family because my, my dad has various things that he's interested in gets out of the house he can't sit still and she does like enjoy being on her own and having the house for ourselves but we call him Macaulay Culkin home alone, home alone. <laughs> <laughs> anyway enough about us what's on today's podcast Chris so we've got a special one today I think we've got a, a chat that I had with an amazing and lovely lovely guy Olympic diver and mentor to elite athletes Leon Taylor. Many people know his voice because he commentates on the Olympic diving um, on telly. Uh, We talk about his experiences uh, and his journey. And in particular, the real reason that I wanted to talk to him was what he's learned about setting and achieving goals. This has got such great application to financial planning, um, as you could probably imagine. Yeah, but presumably he's not suggesting you just close your eyes and dive in anyway. (laughs) <laughs> he, he, some people may remember there was a tv show where um people had to do something that they couldn't do um and he worked with a oh, bristol comedian whose name escapes my mind at the moment a very bristolian comedian um who was scared of heights and he had to help him to dive off the 10 meter board um and he's, he's got a great book is um leon called mentor it's very short but very very good book and he tells a story of how he went about it with this guy and it's absolutely fantastic um yeah anyway let's not say too much because we're going to hear from him in a minute. yeah i'm really looking forward to this interview actually because uh I've, I've heard a bit about him and he does sound an absolutely fascinating guy but before we move on to that 
Now we're going to move on to one of our regular features, No Shizzle Sherlock, where we listen to the supposed words of wisdom from a financial or investment guru. But I think you've got something a bit different for us today, haven't you, Chris? Yeah, I, I did. I thought um, I was I was when I was putting this together, uh, I was reading that book, Mentor. And um, I think it's great. And there's some fantastic lines in there. Because although uh, our interview focuses on goals, Leon and I actually carried on chatting after the recording stopped. And we talked because, um, like you, David, we've both been coaches for kids uh, in sport. And a lot of what he had really said really resonated with me. Um, I really like that little book, Mentor. So so it'll only take you a few hours to read it all the way through. But here's one little tip, and I'd just like to see what you think of this. Expect people to do well, then reinforce the positive rather than criticise the negative. Oh, that's... Do you know what? That really rings true with me. None of us like being criticised. None of us like being told we're not good at stuff. Sometimes, if we are being coached or mentored, people need to point out if we're not perhaps quite doing things right. But if generally, I find that if I'm, when I'm in the coaching that I've done, don't really do it now, but that if you are positive about it, if you focus on the good things that people do, if you focus on the skills that people have, and then ask them to maybe use some of those skills in order to work on a something that they're not quite so good at, then that's a much better way for them to feel positive about what you're trying to tell them rather than just say, you, you're pathetic. You'll never be any good at cricket or whatever it might be. You know, And so I think that's true. I always have an expectation that people will do well. Sometimes I'm a little bit over naive about it because I always think the best of people – People rarely let me down, but when they do, it's it's kind of very, very disappointing. It's much better, I think, to go through life feeling positive and good about people and about yourself rather than criticising the negative all the time. I, I think that's that, that there's a, a guy called Paul Dolan, who uh, I really hope we might get on a podcast, who's a professor. And there's a, at the last Institute of Financial Wellbeing conference, he's, he's talked about people who say, um, oh, I always just think of the best, or people, oh, I always just think of the worst. Um, and if you're a person who says, I always think of the worst, because then when something goes right, I'm happy. What you're doing is you're spending most of the time being unhappy for short bursts of happiness. But if you have your approach, David, I always look for the best in people and sometimes I'm disappointed. Most of the time you're happy with just short bursts of unhappiness. So a far better way to live your life. So I'm, I'm with you completely. Yeah, and I think and I think that, that can often bring out the best in other people as well. Because uh, if you go into a room and immediately you're bristling, people will bristle back. They'll get defensive. But if you kind of go, and get, go into a room going, hi, great to meet you. you know, I've heard some really good things about you. People are far more likely to... to to, to give you what you want. Can I just add one extra thing about this? You expect people to do well. Um, that includes ourselves and that includes our relationship to money. Because you do hear people say, oh, well, I'm just not very good with money. Well, why not say, do you know what? I haven't been very good with money, but I'm going to be better. Chris, I am that man. That is me. <laughs> that, that's exactly what I used to say. Oh, I'm not very good with money. I don't, you know, and now um, I get it now. I get it in a way that, that your books really help with. Um, and so I now, money makes me feel better than it used to, put it that way. Mm. You know, just thinking about, so obviously I see this a lot in the day job. That comment you just mentioned, Chris, not very good with money comes up an awful lot. Uh, sometimes reframing it is switching it back to talk about the things that they do and are good at. Um, and almost just empowering it because you get this, you can get yourself in a very negative sense, and particularly sat in front of somebody who is perceived to be very good with money, such as myself. It's my job; I should be able to be good with money management. It's just reminding it that they're very good at their aspects of their lives, but then just latching on, where, especially when they use that language, is to latch on to anything that can put it in a positive light. For example, they say, "Not very good." Well, you booked this meeting today. That takes an awful lot to come in and actually com start the journey of creating a financial plan. That's a massive positive. It might be that somebody's, you know, got a rough idea of where their money's going. Hey, I tell you what, that's fantastic. That's more than most. And it, even if it's not the perfect thing, it's just reinforcing that these little steps that they're making are incredibly 
you know, important. There might be an element of over over embellishing it a little bit, but it's to give them that little bit of a boost to go. Actually, okay, I'm on a little bit of a I'm on a little bit of a a journey, or I'm starting on the path here, and and trying to put in a positive light. Because Chris, you're so right. The amount of times I hear that phrase, and again, of course, not everybody's very good with money. Where do we get educated on it? We don't. We got it. We did a whole podcast on this. So yeah, sorry, I'll digress. No, you've digressed in a very, uh, very interesting way, actually. So, um, yeah, so absolutely fascinating. I think we're all in agreement uh, with that statement. Expect people to do well, then reinforce the positive rather than criticise the negative. Now, talking about positives in life, there is nothing more positive in this podcast than our next feature, Titus Tomo, where Tom Morris comes up with one of his fantastic, sage, wise, sometimes amusing but always pertinent tips on how to save money. Um, sometimes Chris and I bring something to the table. I'm afraid I don't really have anything this week. Chris, have you got anything that you can uh, bring into the conversation before yeah. we hear from the Prince of Parsimony himself? Yeah, I've got one from a lady called Lynn Beatty, who is a personal finance journalist and broadcaster under the name Mrs. Mummy Penny. Her tip is give yourself incentives to save. For her, what she does is she pays herself to walk. It only kicks in at 10,000 steps, but she says if she hits 10,000 steps, she puts £10 into savings. 15,000 steps, £15 into saving, etc. So it's good for her health and it's good for her saving. Give yourself incentives. I think that's a brilliant idea, actually, because it's uh, <clears throat> well-being in every way, isn't it? It's saving money and obviously, you know, literally going the extra mile to improve her health. Uh, so that's great. OK, Tomo, come on, what have you got? Uh, oh, practical one this week, chaps. Sorry, Ooh. sorry. Um, it was actually from my colleague at Ovation, Christian. Um, he's one of our financial planners, and he he, he mentioned a website called parkonmydrive.com. And I thought, oh, okay, that is it. Literally, it's Ron Seal, right? It says what it says on the tin. You can register your um, it's an annual fee, you register your um your drive on this website and Joe Blogs can go park on it. If it's very available, you put it as available and obviously it's probably a lot lower, lower cost. I'm, I've gone on it briefly, but I'm thinking, you know, you imagine you go to a big sports day and you want to drive somewhere, use somebody's car. Go for it, Chris. I did this on Sunday. Uh, went to the test match at Edgebaston on Sunday and parked in somebody's driveway. Uh, paid 25 quid for the entire day, which is a damn sight cheaper than you would pay for an NCP car park or whatever else. Um, he, he had quite a big driveway and he had about 10 cars in there. Good on oh, you, wow. mate. Good on you. Yeah. Uh, I've, got yeah, no I, I've, I've done it as well, where there's another app called Just Park. In fact, there's probably several that do it that, that where you could. But yeah, I've done it and, and it's absolutely fantastic. You can park it much closer to, and, and sporting events is absolutely the one. I know around Aston Gate, which is the, Stadium in Bristol, where, where Bristol City and the Bristol Bears rugby team play. There are one, of the stadium, of people. one of the stadiums in Bristol, thank David. Please, the if the you stadium would. with the only decent football team in Bristol. <laughs> uh, or is it uh, what would a Bristol, Bristol Rovers fan call it? Trashton Gate. Is that have I got that yeah, right? Well, they do, yeah, they do. But that's because their, their stadium is basically a tent. And, uh, <laughs> and the people... And the people who live around their stadium, I can't even remember what it's called. I mean, there's no core for any parking around there because no one ever wants to go and watch the <laughs> gate. There's huge, huge, huge demand for it. Uh, and uh, get moving off football, because obviously I'm going to have the final word on that. Uh, generally speaking, yeah, I think that's a great tip, Tomo, and one yeah. that we can all help learn from. Right, okay, I do seem to have had the final word. I was waiting for to back going, hang on a minute, this is my podcast. <laughs> right, all right, enough of that. Let's get on to today's topic. So tell us a bit more about Leon Taylor, Chris. So Leon will tell us through his story, um, and his story unfolds in the most beautiful way. Um, I've been thinking about the tricky nature of setting and achieving financial goals for some time now. Um, and... What I might suggest is when you listen to this interview, although he's talking about elite sport, just imagine in the back of your mind, he's also talking about money and our relationship with money. Because so much of the financial advice out there, particularly financial education or banks' guides to 
that's kind of stuff and fintech stuff. They all focus on financial goals. And I think this is such a key topic to unpicking our relationship to money. And he's just the nicest guy as well. So, yeah, anyway, not for me. Let's have a listen to my chat with Leon Taylor. Leon, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Yeah, delighted um, to be here. I loved hearing you speak at the um, uh, Paul Dolan's event in Brighton. Mm. And as I was listening to you, I was thinking, he's the guy I've been wanting to speak to for about two years. This is perfect. So um, let's just start off maybe by just you telling us a little bit about uh, your story and your amazing experience of uh, being an Olympic diver. Yeah, it's not your everyday uh, occupation, is it? Falling off a very high diving board, hurtling towards the water. How and high are we talking? Yeah, well, 10 metres was, was the board that I uh, ended up uh, focusing upon and specialising in. So, yeah, in short, for, uh, for our viewers and listeners, if you can imagine um, a double-decker bus... Uh, but not just one, but another one balanced on top and then a car on top of those. That gives you a, uh, a flavour for how high a 10 metre board is. But the truck that, that gives me a flavour of, of, of feeling it, quite nauseous. That's what yes, I Yes, yeah, <laughs> same. Yeah, me thinking about it now. But uh, the thing is, you hit the water pretty um, pretty fast from, uh, from that height, over 35 miles an hour. And uh, yeah, it's not for everyone, let's just uh, say the least. But it was for me, interestingly enough. So that... My background uh, is in sport, I guess, began before I can remember. I was hyperactive. Um, I wouldn't sleep. I needed constant attention. My poor parents, I drove them up the wall. So the only way that they found uh, some relief was to try and tire me out. And uh, the way they went for that was physical movement. That became my medicine. And of course, physical movement, climbing up the sofa only lasts so long. So swimming while I was in nappies, mother and baby gymnastics, et cetera, et cetera. I was born in, uh, born in um, Cheltenham in Gloucestershire. And uh, so around the local area, there were various sporting activities for young, energetic children. And I tried them all and I eventually found the ones that resonated with me. I was, as I mentioned, a, a keen swimmer, uh, a keen gymnast. And of course, if you blend those two uh, gymnastics over water, you get diving. And to be honest, Chris, when I started diving at eight, it was just another sport that I was trying because my attention was here, there and everywhere. And I wanted to try the next new thing. Um, and eventually, you know, the, the, uh, the, the focus started to settle on the things that I got the most out of. Um, and that obviously correlated with the things that I was um, better at. So football, you know, I was rubbish, so I didn't really want to do that. And of course, standing around waiting for someone to pass me the ball with the attention deficit thing going on didn't work. Whereas standing on a diving board, uh, balanced on your tiptoes in danger seemed to invite hyper-focus or an area where I was able to thrive. And that was kind of the uh, the circumstances that led to me following my dreams. And, and I suppose it's probably worth mentioning that I watched the Olympic Games when I was six and it had such an impact on me that um, I made a committed decision. I didn't know it at the time because I was six, but I made a committed decision. That's what, that's what I wanted to do. And all of my behaviours, all of my aspirations, goals, if you will, started to steer me in that direction. And uh, ultimately, through uh, a long, very long, long story, I was able to um, focus on the sport that I enjoyed the most, which was diving. I competed at three Olympic Games and in 2004, alongside my teammate and uh, dear friend, Peter Waterfield, I won British diving's first Olympic medal in 44 years. So, uh, Which was a silver medal, is that right? It was indeed, yes. Yeah, but fantastic, absolutely incredible. Um, I, I just want to just double check something. When you the first Olympics you watched, which which Olympics was that? Yeah, well done. That was eighty four, nineteen eighty four, beamed in from been? Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Yeah. I was just wondering if because um, many people who who is older than me will remember the Barcelona Olympics because the diving there was right up on the hill and, this, and the beautiful scenes, wasn't it? That strikes. Yeah. Um, yep. And the guy hitting his head as he as he came down. That was right. Yeah. So those were two. So 1984 was the games that I watched and was inspired. 88 is where Greg Luganis hit his head. That's right. I was already diving then. So again, oh, why do you want to do this sport when the <laughs> Olympic champion hits his head? Four <laughs> years later, Barcelona, 1992. I watched as a a very inspired 14 year old, and that was the first uh, you know Olympic games. I really kind of watched my sport in great detail, and then I made the next one at 18. Yeah. Uh, wow. Did my A levels and Olympic games in the same year. So it was quite a uh, you know four year cycles a lot happens in four years especially in uh, in, in your 
yeah yeah so so i want to i want to get into the the whole issue about this being your life goal but before mm-hmm. that I, I, there is one question that i couldn't miss out the opportunity of asking what's the olympic village like <laughs> when you're there with everybody else i imagine that's quite a stressful place yeah it's busy so what you've got is a very interesting dynamic, Chris. So, you, so it's condensed, right? So the Olympic Village, the only people allowed in the Olympic Village are the athletes and officials. So there's no media, there's no friends and family, there's nothing. Coaches? Uh, yeah, coaches, yeah. Coaches, so coaches yeah. and officials. So co- yeah. officials, uh, but there aren't that many spaces. So what it is, it's a safe, um, it's an open prison, basically, <laughs> to, keep, to keep the athletes away from the media distractions, yeah. you know, just to keep us safe. And, you know, the Olympic Games is a very big event, the world's greatest event, the biggest event, two thirds of the world's population watch it. So there are elements of security, safety and, and flow there. So 10,000 plus athletes plus however many thousand officials, coaches for all the different 200 delegations, over 200 countries compete. Bonkers, right? And we're all living in student accommodation or something like that. Fancy apartment blocks eventually, but then you've got partition walls in to kind of, you know, to make it very uh, an efficient use of the space. So it's busy, it's noisy, it's full of the melting pot of the world's cultures. And yeah, it's a stressful place if you um, want it to be. Uh, you know, you, if you think about it from an athlete point of view, this is what you've dreamed of, lived for. It's your moment in time. Uh, maybe you're injured, maybe you're ill, maybe you're on form, blah, blah, blah. Maybe the person next door to you has finished and yeah. they're uh, more interested in watching Netflix really loud or uh, making friends with other people really loud. Uh, or maybe <laughs> they're out partying and they come back in at a late a late point and uh, you know you've got this so that can be stressful in the dynamic so on day one of the olympic games i would say most people in the olympic village are focused focused on what they're doing not many people are unfocused in that environment but then as the olympic games unfolds over the next two weeks people become less focused because when you're done you let your hair down, or most people do. And then you've got this interesting dynamic, Chris, where you've got some people who are done, who are in uh, enjoyment mode, let's say party mode, whatever you want to define it, and other people who are really trying their hardest to focus on the job at hand. So it's a really interesting, uh, ev- you know, how the games village evolves and the, you know, the more of a, of a it's a circus anyway, but it gets more, um, vibrant, shall we say? <laughs> oh, I love it, Leon. There, there are so much, many things to read between your lines. There, so I know. Good, I'm <laughs> pleased that uh, you can uh, <laughs> you can come with me on that. Let's leave that one there. Um, sure. So look, let's let's go back to you and and, mm-hmm. and this um, this eight year old boy that goes that decides. I think it was eight. Decides Six, yeah. diving is my thing. Um, that's then be- becomes your life goal. So. I'm interested in exploring the goal aspect of yeah. this. So, so talk to me about how I don't know. I want to use words like obsessive, or yeah. which, you know, it, is that what happens? Yeah. So, so let's let let's look at it through the eyes of a of a six year old, right? Because I don't know what a goal is because I'm six. Um, maybe I'm starting to get the concept of like things in the future, ambition. Maybe you know, I'm aspiring to. What so you there's a, when you a, grow up, that sort of yeah, yeah, that kind guess. of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so when I'm um, okay, so uh, there's a VHS video somewhere. My mum and dad's of of me as a ten year old with braces, sat on the end of a of a of a diving board at my local pool. Uh, I've only been diving two years, and I say to the, uh, the the answer to the question the presenter is you, you know, what do you want to do in this sport? And I go, my ambition is to go to the Olympic Games, right? So I think that's probably accurate. So I had this inspiration moment of inspiration watching the olympic games at six bearing in mind i hadn't started diving then so at that moment in time i wanted to go in swimming because i was a swimmer identity i like swimming i was fast at it i used to win ribbons and rosettes and medals and therefore you know my six-year-old mind was like well that's the olympic games there's nothing greater than the olympic games because my dad says so that's why daily thompson whistling because he's stopping himself crying this is magic I've got loads of energy. That's what I want to do. And that evolves over time. So it wasn't, okay, goal setting 101. I want to go to the Olympic Games in whatever year and I'm going to do this. It was like, 
an inspiration and ambition to represent my country at the Olympic Games. And then over time, it starts to get a little bit closer. So my times in swimming get better and I'm able to compare myself to the local area, to the nationals. And then this sport of diving comes along and I get very good very quickly, not because I was particularly talented, but because my background lent itself to accelerating quickly. So when you're a gymnast, you've got all many of the skills to do a handstand, somersault in the air, know where you are, called aerial awareness, et cetera, et cetera. So at the age of eight, I was already quite good when I started. And then by the time I was 11, I was the best in the country. And then you start to think, as an 11-year-old, oh, well, if I'm the best in the country and I'm 11, then maybe this is the, you know, the route for me to the Olympic Games. So then you start to adjust and you kind of think, well, my coaches say I need to train more and this is the sport I enjoy the most. So if I stop gymnastics and concentrate on diving and I can train diving every night of the week, as well as the weekends, as well as swimming in the morning before school, then maybe I can go after this. I'm not sure when it changed from ambition to something more like a goal. I think goals... I can't really remember when they started to come into that language and they are helpful in some ways. But for me, it was always that innocence of a child driving this adventure. And then things change along the way, which we can unpick momentarily. But I think there was no point, but there was always that committed decision. And I say committed decision because lots of children I speak to want to be something when they're older, but their behaviours don't change. Whereas mine did. I used to write down my best time next to the world record holder in the Guinness Book of World Records that I used to get from Santa every Christmas. And then I would always ask my dad when the Olympic Games were back on and he'd have to explain to his young child that they were every four years and I'd only been alive six. So, you know, you can imagine that. Uh, yeah, but, but, but what I'm saying is there were, there were definite changes to yeah. behaviour. Therefore, you could argue that was a committed decision, you know, to, to act. And therefore, my yeah. parents you know, supported me. They didn't say, right, great, you know, you, we're going to hold you to that. They were allowing me to drive it you. intrinsically. Yeah, yeah. So, so the so the goal, the little spark happens, and then mm-hmm. and then the fire starts to build, and 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 your actions build it further and further, and then this. So, uh, when you when you when you, the, the Olympics starts to become a reality, mm-hmm. I'm assuming that this. Uh, I, I've used the word obsession. You haven't, so I apologize. Yeah, yeah. No, let's right. go with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but this 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 focus, maybe is a nicer yeah. word on on the goal. Um, is what gets you to the Olympics. Is what yep. gets you to be successful. So it's a positive thing in that regard, right? Yeah, certainly. I mean, it uh, is certainly a requirement. Uh, I would uh, I would assert that there is an element. So the thing is with um, with sport, you know, it's sometimes glamorized, isn't it? You know, those moments in time and you think it's amazing and they are amazing moments in time. And I look back at my successes, you know, when, when I've achieved something that I'm very proud of. And sometimes, as we'll discover, those aren't the medal occasions. There's sometimes moments in time that mean much more to, than those medals. But let's say they're the winning the medals and, and, and all of that, you know, wonderful stuff. Those are, are moments in time that you um, and they're short moments in time and they're gone quickly. But generally, the seven hours of training a day I was doing was bloody hard work mm-hmm. and boring as hell <laughs> in some ways. So yeah. the, so so what you need to be prepared to do and this is where you need the obsession is you need to put up with that. You need to put up with the fact that no one can see you. No one gives a monkeys that you are blood, sweat and tears working on these small technical things that are generally not as glamorous as putting on the Olympic, you know, tracksuit top and go, you know, all of that stuff is, but there's, you know, there's a wonderful quote that I often remind myself of and those who I'm lucky enough to work with that the only guarantee is that there's no guarantees when you think about it you're putting all this time into a sport when the only guarantee is that there's no guarantees and it could all be quote unquote wasted if and when you get injured and you don't come back and all this stuff so it, it, that obsession that you, the word that you use is accurate because you need something more than just a bit of like um helpful motivation to kind of get you through those days you need to be you know the bit between the teeth that yeah. like you know the, the 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 driving the driven the driving force you know these are attributes that are that are um nourished within those environments but they're also innate as well so they're you know you could argue speaking to athletes that there's something about them that's there anyway and that it just the environment then creates that opportunity for them to yeah. follow it 
Yeah. Okay. So, so I, I just want to give a quick, um, a lovely quote to just finish up the, the, the development of the goals. There's a, a singer called Jeff Tweedy of a band called Wilco, who wrote a great book called How to Write One Song. Uh, and he talks about how when he was um, a small kid, he told everybody he was a songwriter. He didn't quite know why he picked songwriter, but he just told everybody he was a songwriter. And then after a few years, he thought, I better actually write some songs if I'm going to be a songwriter. So he started writing songs. And now he's a professional musician. You know, so that's how he got into it. He doesn't quite know how that all started. It, it just did. Anyway, I think that sounds a similar kind of parallel story to, to your development, your goal. What I'd like to get onto, because I could talk about this stuff for absolutely hours, um, Leon, but I'm really interested in what happened after you got that silver medal. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so, I mean, this is how we had our conversation. You invited me on, isn't it? So I, I shared when I was on stage at the uh, the event that you saw me speak at that somewhere over that period of time in the build-up to my three Olympic Games and ultimately winning Olympic silver 20 years on from that moment where I was inspired, um, things changed. And the uh, happiness I enjoyed when I was a youngster because I was just doing the thing I love to do, which was falling off a big high diving board and, you know, getting to compete and stuff. It suddenly started to change as things got more, quote unquote, serious and goal setting came in and all these things. And then you're almost insidiously, you find yourself sold on the when you achieve X, you will be happy. And I don't quite know when that happened. And I had to learn the hard way how to get out of that because there was a period in, in, in my career where the focus became the outcomes, right? Winning an Olympic medal. But to be fair, Chris, I don't get to control that because other people are involved and they do their thing. And when I'm focusing on winning a medal, an extrinsic goal, you know, and that's all I'm obsessing about, then I start putting pressure on myself and things start to then creak right and so my my story very quickly I you know uh, as all athletes you get injured my injuries were quite serious after my second Olympic Games where we finished fourth so heartbreak yeah, the worst place isn't it worst they place, all that kind of stuff um, it went into a negative spiral and that negative spiral was an injury needing surgery I recovered from the surgery and my shoulder took me six months got back in uh, the shoulder wasn't right needed another surgery and then I put so much pressure on myself that I fell into what was uh, retrospectively diagnosed as a period of depression which I had to fight my way through what it felt like a fight and eventually you know there's lots of different reasons that I managed to uh, climb out of that place I was at and the and the learning that I uh, got from that period was you know I was obsessing over the details and trying to fix this and fix that and you know wasn't seeing my friends and family and you know wasn't smiling and there was lots of lots of things speaking to this period of punishment that I was inevitably putting myself through not asking for help and I came out the other side and that you know, vicious cycle I was in started to go the other way. And the big shift in focus was like, the reason I do this sport is because I enjoy it. And it was that reminder mm. that it wasn't about the outcome of winning a medal because I'd been obsessed by that and that hadn't served me. It was like the fact that if you're enjoying you know, what you do, ultimately that virtuous circle starts to happen. I paid less attention to the outcomes and more on the enjoyment of the process. So I was smiling, I was breathing deeply, I was having fun, I was talking to my friends, my family, I was much more balanced. And of course, what happened, my performance increased every time we hit another barrier in the road, another fourth place at the World Championships, but we took it in our stride. And ultimately, the big test, my third Olympic Games, under all that pressure, under all that expectation, I've got a big smile on my face. I'm having fun. I'm breathing deeply. I'm enjoying the process. I'm almost unattached to the results. And of course, I get the result that I wanted on paper. But it wasn't about that. It was arguably who I became along the way, which is why when we talk about goals for me, they're helpful to kind of give you a direction. But it's not about those. It's about the systems that you have in place, which will inevitably result in those achievements happening anyway. And when they do, it's not about those because you've got a system in place that allows you to thrive. And that's what I experienced towards the back of my uh, sporting career that I've taken with me now into the roles I play as a, as a coach, executive coach, speaker, presenter, and, you know, uh, someone who who pays a lot of attention to wellness you know financial wellness mental yeah. wellness physical wellness this whole element of if we can build these foundations well then it all comes down to habits and i think this is where we're kind of getting to 
the the image i know you've you've worked with a mentor tom daly for example who who, who is probably the currently most famous um diver and, and the image of him knitting by the side of the pool um was a very powerful one i think for elite sport to see something like that happening which plays right into what you're discussing yeah. uh, if you had had the um a focus on the enjoyment when you were in a teenager and developing your skills do you think still think you'd have got where you you've got to yeah, I, this is the thing that I'm taking most with me now into the work that I'm very passionate about, which is my mentoring work. So I'm very lucky to have been there and done it, got the T-shirt when it comes to elite sport. And for uh, decades now, I've had the pleasure and continue to have the pleasure of working with young athletes. They're young because they're younger than me uh, in many different sports, both able disabled on their adventures. And I'm always now bringing the focus back to them as a human being. Because if you're happy and, uh, you know, things in your life have an element of balance. So you use the example of Tom, his side hustle of knitting allowed him to have a really strong additional mindfulness practice to deal with all of the, the pressure of expectation that was going on. And ultimately, his fourth Olympic Games, uh, bearing in mind I've known him since he was 10, he was able to stand on the, on the podium, on the top step, which is what he was trying to do all of his career, but he was trying too hard. And he speaks yeah. beautifully about that. We've been on, um, you know, BBC documentaries together where we, we talk about that and, you know, how you can get in your own way when you make something too important. And now for me, uh, I work closely with athletes on what else are you doing is the question, you know. So what's your, what's your you know, what else do you enjoy? Who are you? You know, for me, it was like, I am an athlete. I am a diver. You know, that was my identity. That's what I did. And when I was injured, I was screwed because I was like, ah. Oh. Whereas over my career, I had a little bit more of a focus as I've described and balanced. I went back to university, studied something I knew nothing about. You know, there was other uh, parts of me that I was able to focus on and thrive and get a lot of intrinsic reward out of. And then, of course, when my body started to recover to the point where I could train a bit harder, you know, I was in a, in a much more a state of ease and allowing rather than fighting life with resistance all the time and trying to bend life to how I want it rather than accepting it for how it is and mm. then responding with um, with ease. And, and that's the kind of way that I approach things now. And, and of course, there's certain things you can put in place to allow that sense of ease. And one of those is understanding who you are as a human being. So in my mentoring work, that is where I focus now, this element of the human being who chooses to do this sport. And it's a choice. You don't have to do it. And it's okay if you don't want to. And therefore, you put yourself at choice. The results then start to go in the direction that one would want them to. Yeah. And and the difference between those two states, or one of the differences, it seems to me, is that goals are finite mm -hmm. and they come to an end when you either do or don't achieve them. Whereas what you're talking about lasts forever, who you are. It's much more longer standing. We've talked before about um, on, the, on the podcast about intrinsic and extrinsic motivations, doing something for other people, doing it just because you want to do it. This is the sort of space we're talking about, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, certainly. And, and that was the kind of shift back to extrinsic winning medals, you know, the result, and then intrinsic how it feels to train hard, to have a laugh with your teammates, to smile when you're doing it, to go again, to try and make improvements, to be really curious about. Can I just nudge that envelope a little bit more? And if I don't, great, what did I learn? And then carrying on and then speak to these concepts of growth mindset versus fixed mindset. And all of these areas are so, so important when you come back down to it. So it's not about getting rid of goals. It's just about understanding that that's the direction and aim that you're going in and then letting go of it mm. and then concentrating on the process. And we talk about this in sport, following the process. So you see athletes in any different sport following a in my case, a pre-dive routine. You know, there's all these processes that you follow. If you focus on the process, the performance takes care of itself. And if you put in your best performance, then the results are the results and whatever. You see where you go and, and, and then it comes back to the intrinsic. It doesn't matter. Of course, they matter. If you want to make them matter, you're judged by them and you can't get away from that. But what really matters is how you feel you know, during that process, because I know many athletes and I was one of them where I couldn't wait for it just to be over because it was so painful. And then I could be in, in a state of relief that I didn't mess up, that I won that medal. And that's no way to live. You're living in fear, not joy, love, compassion, you know, all this wonderful stuff. And I feel that athletes are starting to recognize that now. We're starting to, you know, in my era, it was like athletes are invincible. 
So therefore I took that on and I didn't ask for help when I was suffering with my yeah, mental health. Yeah, yeah. Whereas now it's like, come on, you know, you're a human being. Of course we all have, you know, times where we're challenged. So what do we do? But hand up and go, hey, I'm not yeah. doing so good. I need yeah. some help and people will come and support you. So look, you and our listeners won't need me to point out the parallels here with with finance and money, which is why you're on a financial well-being podcast, because um, there's a lot of obsession with wealth and, and, and accumulation of stuff, which seems to me in that goals space, yes. um, rather than intrinsic motivations of what do you enjoy in life and who are you, the, the, the stuff. Um, but a question for you then that leads on from all of that is how do you help people move from one to the other? Mm-hmm. Um I talk a lot about um, intrinsic motivations and, and the question, especially with financial advisors, and the question I get back a lot is, how do I help somebody to find it? How, what questions do I ask? Because most people haven't got a clue about this stuff because we just get our head down, we do our job, we accumulate money, you know, we don't think about it. So how do you help somebody move from one to the other, shift their thinking a bit? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question and, and it depends where people are, right? So you kind of meet them where they are, you know, and, and the great question is what's important to you? So what's important to you when it comes to finances, you know? financial freedom okay so what does that actually mean what would you be able to do how would you feel what would it look like what would it sound like rather than a when I earn x I will then be happy is the same as when I win a medal I'll allow myself to be happy no what would happen so you come back down to this element of identity so if I'm working with someone you know around their behaviors around finances it's a, it's okay so you know are you the type of person that looks after their financial well-being And it's an identity thing, because if you've always just been spending or whatever it is, then you need to change your identity around it. I'm the type of person that takes my financial well-being, uh, makes my financial well-being a priority. And then you prove it to yourself with small wins. So what's the one thing that you could do that would be a behavior that you could do every week, every month or whatever that would prove that? And the trick here is to start small, because a habit needs to be established before it can be improved. And over a period of time, if you start to do that one thing, you are then proving to yourself that you're the type of person that is, in this case, in our example, taking their prioritizing their financial well-being. And over time, compound interest, we don't need to talk about that in great detail, right? <laughs> Very it's good the, though, like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the same with it's the same with habits. So we could yeah. do this through nutrition, Chris. We could do it through movement. You know, Leon, I really want to you know, improve my fitness. Okay, what are you doing now? Well, I'm doing nothing. Okay, great. So where could we start? Right. And what's the one thing you could do every day for a short period of time that proves to yourself that you're the type of person that takes physical movement seriously? Look, I've just been unwell for two weeks. So I've had to take back, you know, my um, my son you know, went off to nursery, as he loves to do, uh, and then brings back whatever bugs they've got. And so we get to do those anyway. So I've been poorly. So I wasn't able to do what I would normally do, but I was able to commit. So I proved to myself I'm the type of person that takes my wellness um, seriously or focus on it. So every morning I was getting up. And I was going outside, I was getting at least 10 to 20 minutes of sunlight in my eyes while going for a gentle walk, right? I wasn't improving my fitness, I wasn't improving my strength, but I was improving my focus, my mood, and my circadian, helping my circadian rhythm to allow me to get better sleep. Because every day I was doing that. So even though I was like, oh, I haven't trained, you know, I could have gone in that direction. Yeah, but I was yeah. like, well, what, what are the circumstances presenting? And I proved to myself with small wins. So to come back to your question, how do you get people to convert where well, you meet them where they are and you invite them to start small in a different direction? And then over time, it becomes that habit and then it becomes effortless because people say to me, well, how did you train seven hours a day, Leon? And I would go, oh, I just did. And I'm not and I'm not being fickle. It was just well, I didn't really notice it because over time I just did more and more and more and more and more. And that yeah. was how these circumstances lent themselves to that habit being well that's what you do yeah. uh, and then yeah. of course you need to rebuild them now when you retire from uh, from that as a as, as an occupation how do you eat an elephant yes one bite at a time um leo this is absolutely fascinating and i really appreciate your time um the work that you do with your mentees i, I, I want to just ask one slightly off-piece question here right about about mentoring Ooh. about what mentoring means to you because i know a lot of people consider themselves mentors or go into mentoring maybe after a semi-retirement thing or it could be coaching kids um I've been a cricket coach in my time um and I stood on the touchline at rugby and watched other coaches and I've got opinions on what's good and bad you know but I'd be, I'm interested in, in what makes a good mentee what makes a mentor what makes a good coach as far as you're concerned 
Yeah, so I guess the coaching and mentoring is slightly nuanced, slightly different. Oh, yes, skills. I love that. Yeah. Yes, great. Yeah. Yeah. Please so, explain so, how, what, what, the, what the difference is. Yeah, I'd be delighted to. So in, in my take, I mean, we could get you get pulled into the semantics, but in a mentoring capacity versus coaching, so a mentor has been there and got a T-shirt, and that T-shirt is simply an experience or a skill set that the mentee can learn from, right? Now, this is why mentoring is difficult, because often mentors know the answer. Yeah. And for me, the trick to effective and wonderful mentoring is not telling your mentee the answer yeah. because you're trying to create not dependence. So, Chris, say I was mentoring you and say, and I just do your homework for you every time you come to me. Go, oh, I don't know the answer to this. Oh, here's your answer. Off you go. What do you learn? Nothing. But then that is the challenge because you're in this relationship where the mentee is really keen to learn from you and you, they know that you know the answer. And then when you don't tell them, it can be frustrating and good. That, for me, that element of growth, thrashing, whatever, you know, frustration in a good way that the mentee might feel is because you're creating independence or ultimately interdependence where they don't actually need you. And I feel, you know, the, the, the more effectively you can create that, not dependency, but the need for, you know, sounding boards where someone could be called out on their blind spots because you know coaches can do that as well but from a mentor you know it's a lovely rewarding relationship where there's two way of course from a mentor point of view you get to learn you know what's happening within an organization that you might not get from a report for example if it's within a business when a sporting context I feel much younger than I ever do when I'm you know with the young athletes <laughs> yeah, from, yeah. from lots of it keeps you young and keeps you vital and inspired and I love working with um mentees because what I see in their eyes that steely-eyed determination passion drive inspires me to you know to remind myself that I've still got that as well so the the coaching is different because often you're not an expert in in the area or you might be but you don't have to do it whereas the in the mentoring because you've been there and experienced all the skill set it can be a little bit more challenging so a mentoring or coach isn't telling people what to do yeah. it's about yeah. allowing creating the circumstances where they figure it out for themselves but you can give them suggestions when people yeah. are stuck don't leave people stuck that's not cool yeah uh, i'm also a business coach and one of the best um, phrases i've heard is coach the person not the problem which is a, a, another good way of putting it. Leo, fascinating stuff. I really, really appreciate your time. Um, you've got a, a book out, I, I know, on, on mentoring, which uh, I've got, sadly, I didn't arrive before this meeting, oh, this no. interview, but yeah, it's on its way. So I'm really looking forward to reading that. So I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. My absolute pleasure. Cheers, Chris. Well, absolutely fascinating. You weren't wrong there, Chris. What a really, really interesting guy he is. It's uh, Justin Lee Collins, who's the Bristol comedian I mentioned earlier on. Um, right. And uh, the way that um, Leon mentors people is by doing little bits at a time. So when Justin Lee Collins first went on the 10-metre diving board, he was absolutely terrified. Um, and so what he said, well, just sit there and let's have lunch. So he wasn't going to make him jump off immediately. They just spent every day going to the 10-metre diving board and having a sandwich. And so he got used to that level. Um, and I, you know, I'm sorry to make this too slightly tortured, but there are so many comparisons here with money of people thinking that they need something or that they don't deserve something, whatever it might be, so many self-limiting beliefs that we have around money. And we can just change a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. After a while, you realise you're somewhere different. And I think that's what um, that's what he learned. Tomo, uh, you've probably got a comment or two to make about this. I'm so, I love this conversation so much. I've got so much to say. Arguably... For me, the best guest we've ever had. I think probably because it resonates with me professionally more than more than anything. A lot of the language he was talking about it sort of articulated my views on this whole topic of goals. Um, this whole idea of what coaching and mentoring is really all about. Um, I said so many examples of yeah, I'm a mentor for so and so, and I just tell them what to do. Well, we kind of missed the point, really. This whole idea that coaches are equipping people to, you know, solve these problems them, themselves. That's that's really, really the job. You've got to try and equip them. But, but more than anything, just trying to enable people to focus on the enjoyment of the process. So, so this whole idea of financial goals, well, my goal is to retire at 65. Okay, well, what are you going to do in the meantime? You know, I, I, there's this great big 
movement, and I don't mean to insult anybody who's who's listening, but I just would like to put this there, this fire movement, this financial freedom movement, this I want to stop working at 40. Now, it might be, I see it's very much in the States. In the UK, I see it, see it less so. Okay, well, what next? What about this time period up to the age of 40? What are you missing out on? Why are you building up to this point? Um, it might be because they, they're absolutely miserable in what they do. Okay, is there a scope to find something else to do? All these things come up. It's just this whole idea of financial goals. Once I get there, I'll be happy. It's not that simple and it won't happen. Got to think about what you're doing in the meantime and the enjoyment you're having with it. I, I don't know. I just found it profound and, yeah. and it articulated it brilliantly. Tom, I'm, I'm totally with you. There's a line that, that Leon came out with, which I love, where which you talked about the danger can be that the focus becomes the outcomes. And that's that's true of whether the outcome is I want to win an Olympic medal or the outcome could be I want a bigger car. But if the focus becomes the outcomes, you're missing the intrinsic motivations, the things that bring you joy and the things that research tells us brings us happiness in life. And it's not only stuff. It's not the outcomes. Um, there's, I love the way he talked about life being an adventure. You know, uh, what a great attitude to the world, isn't it? Uh, I have to be honest, there was also a little bit of me that really enjoyed hearing what was, I think, potentially gossip about the behind the scenes of the Olympic Village. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We all love a bit of goss. Yeah, it was a great chat. I mean, I've said this before, Chris. You you do a good interview, mate. You really do. But that was a that was a really good one. And I think he was just such a personable man that 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 I think there's a lot to take away from that for all of us. Clearly, it's made a deep impression on us all. So um, I think that's it for now. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Uh, we've certainly enjoyed bringing it to you. And I hope you'll enjoy us again the next time for another one of our financial well-being podcasts. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris, and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. <laughs>